This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm here to talk about burnout among physicians um, and uh, across the spectrum of education from students to residents and fellows and practicing physicians uh, and why it's important not just for the physicians themselves but for our patients and the healthcare system. So here's a roadmap of what we'll be talking about today. Um, we'll talk about some definitions of different terms we use when we're talking about physician well-being because it's not all about burnout. Um, the scope of the problem, how bad is it? Where does burnout come from? What are the drivers of reduced well-being? And why does it matter? And then finally, what are we going to do about it? Um, this is an area, a topic in medicine that has exploded over the last five years um, in response to increasing recognition that physician well-being is having an impact on the workforce, um, as well as a couple of, um, of prominent, um, prominent suicides in um, medical students and residents, which has uh, spurred the conversation to more urgency. Um, and uh, so this is an important part both of medical education but also continuing education for physicians. This says, uh, we turn to an expert on the subject who doesn't actually know more than we do but looks sincere, sounds convincing, and has doctor in front of her name. Um, and this is just to highlight that burnout is not unique to physicians, so many professions experience burnout, and if you yourself have experienced that, then you have a level of expertise about this, so hold that with you and um, think about uh, how your situation um, may or may not be similar to some of the situations I've described with phys physicians. I'm going to start with a story, uh, an experience I had when I was in residency, um, uh, I did not have a horse in residency, but this this picture is um, relates to uh, in the middle of residency. I was watching the Super Bowl, but I'm not really a football fan, so I wasn't really watching it. I had it on the background so I could sort of feel connected with what was happening in the world while I was working on several other things at the same time. And this commercial came on, and some of you may have seen it. There are these Clydesdales, and they befriend a dog. Um, they develop this animal friendship. Then the horses go away, and then the horses and the dog is very sad. The horses come back. They have a reunion, and it's very poignant. Yeah, it's like it's meant to tug the heartstrings. But I started sobbing when I saw that. Um, and to the point where I was like, whoa, what just happened? Um, and uh, what had happened to me was that I had not processed so much of what I was holding inside uh, during the busy times of being a resident, and it has to come out somewhere. So physician work is hard, even under the best circumstances. Even if you could distill physician jobs into almost their most idealized version, which doesn't exist. But if you could, there would still be time pressures. Um, you know, uh, if a patient is very sick or there's an emergency, that must be prioritized above, above all other things, um, sometimes at the expense of your own personal life or um, a, a non-urgent patient need for another patient. Um, there's always cognitive overload. One of the joys of the medical profession is that you're always learning, but that also means that you're dealing with lots and lots of information that you're trying to incorporate. 
And then, as all of you know, um, on a daily basis, you're dealing with human suffering, both on micro and macro levels. Um, and that can lead to emotional exhaustion, compassion fatigue. And if there isn't adequate recognition that that's what's happening to you, then there may be, uh, you, there may be a situation like this. And actually, almost every physician I've talked to has had these moments of the ugly cry, where you just are not expecting uh, all these emotions to come out. And they come out at a very strange time that seems emotion disconcordant. Um, so another story from residency. Um, I was going to a 24-hour call, um, and uh, which is when we admit patients uh, and stay overnight in the hospital. Um, and as I was walking to UCSF Hospital, where I did residency, um, I noticed my car was gone. Um, and I wasn't sure. So that my first thought was my car's either been stolen or it's been towed. A normal second thought would be, how can I clear my day right now so that I can deal with this potentially expensive or uh, um, definitely inconvenient issue? But that wasn't my next thought. My next thought was, well, guess I'll deal with that in a day <laughs> because I'm on my way to call. Um, and the system didn't seem to be in place that I felt that I could, you know, uh, call for a personal need related to my car being gone. So I went in and I actually was really good at displacing this. I, uh, went in, worked a 24 hour shift. And then, um, the next day came home to find three letters in my mailbox saying that my car had been towed and was impounded. And in fact, it had been towed three days prior. So not only did I, um, was I not able to deal with this sort of, uh, life snafu in the moment, but I hadn't, I'd been so oblivious that I hadn't even noticed it at the time. And that kind of speaks into how, um, you're sometimes able to hold it all together until you add in this other stuff. And this other stuff is a whole bunch of different things, adverse events, life events, um, team dynamics, interpersonal conflict at work, which every uh, job experiences, and lack of control. So these are some of the ingredients that can go into decreased well-being. So talking about some definitions of terminology, uh, just to lay the groundwork of what we're going to talk about. Compassion fatigue, um, I like to highlight the difference between compassion fatigue and burnout because burnout is talked about quite a bit. Um, and one of the hallmarks of burnout is that it's uh, a, a persistent or frequent state. Um, so compassion fatigue is also known as vicarious trauma. Again, physicians aren't the only profession that experiences this. Any direct care field from social work to firefighting um, to police officers to even you know teachers and people who work in direct service um, can experience vicarious trauma. So if they're working with human suffering over a period of time for anyone who's involved in that, a hazard of the job is emotional depletion. Um, this can often be temporary, so you could have a very busy clinic day or a really stressful meeting that was really sad and, and tragic for a family that really affects you emotionally, and recognize that you're depleted that day. Um, it, and if you have the are able to recharge during that time, then um, it may not progress any further than that. Um, you just need to take some time for yourself. Um, but over time, that can be one of the factors that contributes to burnout, but it's a little bit different. And this is also known as the cost of caring. 
Burnout, again, many people are familiar with the term. Um, when I talk to residents and medical students, fewer people are familiar with the fact that there's actually a formal definition of burnout. It's an intuitive definition, but it has three domains. First, emotional exhaustion, which is kind of similar in terms of feeling depleted. Um, Cynicism and depersonalization. So unfortunately, many people have had the experience of seeing a doctor who is callous and saying things about patients as if they are objects, and that's not okay. Um, Burnout is not never an excuse, but sometimes, while it may be that that doctor is just a jerk, uh, it can be a sign of burnout as well if this is sort of uh, a change from prior. Depersonalization is also necessary to some extent for us to do our work. You can't uh, get completely emotionally invested constantly in every single facet of your work, or you wouldn't be able to get through the day. Um, but when this is the dominant way of interacting with patients or uh, feeling connect- not feeling connected to your job, that could be a sign of burnout. And then sense of ineffectiveness at work. Um, Interestingly, for physicians, because physicians still tend to rate their job as inherently meaningful, this is less of a driver in physicians, but is a strong driver in some fields. If you're going to boil burnout down into the crux of what it is, it's really a mismatch in the workplace between desired state and reality. If you ask a medical student why they want to be a doctor, Nine times out of ten, when you're reading personal statements, somewhere in there it'll say, I love science and I want to help people. Um, And that is the ideal state of being a doctor. But when all this other stuff happens, it can feel pretty dissociated from that ideal state. So the degree to which the ideal state is separated from current reality is the space where burnout lives. Another really important distinction is that burnout is not the same thing as depression. The outward manifestations can appear similar, and it sometimes can be difficult to distinguish among the two. There are validated tools to examine dimensions of both, um, and uh, there is some suggestion that those who've experienced depression in the past may be at somewhat higher risk for burnout, although that association is complex and has not been um, determined as causal. Um, And... uh, People can be burned out without being depressed, and they can be depressed without being burned out, although they do often coexist, um, especially uh, in times when the work life and personal life overlap quite a bit, like residency. Um, The main distinction with burnout is that it primarily affects the work life. So the one question to distinguish whether someone's experienced burnout or depression is, Are these symptoms persistent when you're at home, when you're on vacation, when you have a day off? Is this how you're still feeling? Um, And if the answer is no, I feel like a full person when when I have a day off um, and I'm totally happy when I'm on my vacation, then burnout is is more likely. Um, The reason it's important to distinguish is uh, not for semantic sake, but because the treatments are different. We'll we'll go into some of the interventions that address burnout, and we know for depression, psychotherapy and medications are essential elements of treatment, Um, and if you don't include those, then you won't make a lot of headway on depression. So I wanted to address the possible concern that... um, Doctors are sounding a little bit whiny when we're talking about burnout. Um, 
And I think a lot of people can empathize uh, with, if you know doctors personally, with the fact that um, this goes deeper than uh, complaining about the, uh, the content of a job. However, I just want to highlight that, um, yes, doctors do have it pretty good. Doctors um, consistently rate their work as having inherent meaning, which is not a which is a privilege and is not something that every profession feels. And doctors obviously are well compensated uh, compared to the general population for the work that they do. Um, but I, I will talk a little bit about why this matters not just to the health system, but inherently um, uh, why we should care about the well-being of physicians as people. So I'm going to describe the inputs into burnout, which include individual factors and a lot of system factors, and then the outcomes of burnout, which affect both individuals, patients, and the system. Let's talk about the scope of the problem. How bad is burnout and how serious is it? When we uh, are in medical training, we often refer to unusual diagnoses as zebras. Um, the adage goes, if you hear hoofbeats, you should think horses, not zebras. And the implication being that, you know, common things are more likely than uncommon things. Um, so burnout is not a zebra. It's not an unusual diagnosis, even though up until five or six years ago, it was really not talked about Um in many, many studies, unfortunately, consistently, uh, the burnout prevalence is astronomical. In medical students, medical students, um, the burnout prevalence, point prevalence, is up to 50%. In residents, it's between 50 and 80%. And in practicing physicians, studies vary 20 to 60%, but the most comprehensive studies have shown burnout to be around 50% and increasing. So if you take a step and back and think, can you think of any disease entity that affects half of the population at one point in time? The answer is no, because there's literally no disease that affects 50% of the population at one time point. And so the take home from that is that burnout is not a disease. It is something that is endemic and systemic, um, driven a lot by system factors. This graphic here is from a study by um, Tate Shanafeld and colleagues, um, very comprehensive study uh, examining rates of burnout and life satisfaction, uh, work-life satisfaction in physicians from many, many different disciplines. So this axis here shows a percent proportion who are satisfied with work-life balance, and then the x-axis is the proportion who are burned out. Um, now, when you are making uh, statistical graphs, as, uh, as you know, um, ending an axis with any th or starting an axis with anything other than zero is generally not recommended. But this speaks to the fact that even the specialties that have the lowest rates of burnout are still close to forty percent. Um, so there's a there is a range between forty percent, around forty percent in the specialties that have the least burnout, to around seventy percent in specialties like emergency medicine that have the highest rates of burnout. And this study was done in 2011 and uh, 2014, and the rates are increasing. So then the question becomes: Is burnout worse in physicians than in other fields? And the answer is actually yes. Yes, it is. Uh, so. Uh, across all specialties and physicians in this uh, population-based sample, um, the burnout uh, point prevalence was 
0.4%. And in the general U.S. population in, in different fields, it was 28.4%. And the satisfaction with work-life balance was also lower than in the general U.S. population. And the directionality of the change was opposite. So in physicians, burnout and satisfaction with work-life balance are worsening. And in the general population, those two are actually trending in a more positive direction. So that's this current state. Where does this all come from? For a long time with the burnout research, for a good decade or so, um, there was a lot of focus on the potential for individual factors to be associated with burnout so that we could identify those vulnerable individuals who were at risk and intervene. As we've talked about, because the prevalence of burnout is so high, the entire population is, in fact, at risk. And, and going along with that, there have been very few personal factors that have been found to be associated with burnout. There's some suggestion that people who have tendencies toward the psychologically defined neuroticism may have slightly higher rates of burnout, but it hasn't been consistent. Um, and then practicing women physicians may have higher rates of burnout, but that's not consistent across the spectrum of education. Um, one major association with burnout is having experienced a major error or adverse event, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. Another interesting thought uh, that goes along with the concept of burnout as a mismatch between expectations and current state um, is that low tolerance of ambiguity is also associated with burnout. And this means if you are the type of person who has a hard time with gray areas, and many of us physicians are like that, many of us non-physicians are like that, um, where it's really tough to deal with uncertainty, um, because physician work is uh, lives in the gray area, this is a pretty hard thing to manage when you're in a profession that has tons of uncertainty. So especially in fields that have a lot of, that require a lot of quick decisions without a lot of information like emergency medicine, tolerance of ambiguity, low tolerance of ambiguity has been associated with burnout. And as I said before, we, we know that depression is sometimes co-occurrent, but the causal associations and directionality of depression and burnout um, are complex and um, it's not a very clear cut association. Just taking a um, minute to talk more about the connection between errors and burnout. Um, some of you may have heard of this uh, seminal report by the Institute of Medicine called To Err is Human, um, which really changed the culture of patient safety in the United States um, to acknowledge that it is, in fact, impossible for a human being to never make an error, although that's what we've been hoping doctors will never make an error. Um, and recognizing that because of that, the whole health system needs to be built in order to support patient safety. Um, now, unfortunately, physician self-culture has not evolved to acknowledge that physicians do, in fact, make mistakes. And so um, major adverse events and errors have a tremendous impact on personal well-being beyond the, beyond the scope of grieving for the patient, which is a real and important part of this process. Um, guilt, wanting to learn what you could, uh, what you could um, take away from that to do better and not make the same mistake in the future, but also shame. So this, this sense of feeling like you're not, val you have no value as a person or you're a terrible doctor because you've made a mistake. So that 
part of physician culture is likely an important contributor to the experience of major adverse events. In the literature, when they've looked at this, um, physicians who have experienced a major error are more likely prospectively to report um, high burnout, to, to have high burnout scores. The burnout also leads to suboptimal patient care and an increase in self-reported errors. So you can get into a cycle with burnout and uh, errors. So those are the only individual factors I'm going to spend a lot of time on, and that's because a lot of the factors that drive burnout, given that it's so common, relate to workplace structures and cultural issues. So, and by, by cultural, I mean workplace culture. Um, when they've looked at workplaces that have happier, more engaged employees, here are some of the things that, uh, that they say about their workplaces. My work is meaningful. I feel like my workplace genuinely cares. Um, my work matches my expectations, and I'm given the resources I need, both in terms of time and support, to match that. And then having protected time during the workday for self-care. Things that contribute to burnout um, are sort of the converse of this, particularly rigid schedules with lack of flexibility, both in terms of time when you're working and not working, and then also in terms of how your day is spent. Um, poor teamwork, either, either in terms of communication or in terms of distribution of workload. And then heavy administrative workload, particularly related to the electronic health record and documentation. Anyone who's been a patient will not be surprised that physicians spend a lot of time on their computers. Um, this was a very interesting study done by Chris Sinsky that came out last year um, where they uh, did observations of 57 physicians across four specialties and found that physicians were spending two times as much of their day on administrative work as they were on patient care. So for every one hour of patient care, they spent two hours on administrative work. And again, you may not be surprised to learn that only half of an in-person visit with a patient was actually spent talking to the patient. The other half was spent documenting on the computer or trying to fill out paperwork. Yes? Great question. The question was whether all the data we're talking about uh, relates to physicians who are in a hospital environment or private practice. Um, I'll try to specify when that's the case, but it's actually there's data across all fields, all practice environments. This particular study is for ambulatory settings, um, so uh, primary care and then subspecialty clinic practices. That's for this study. In addition to only spending half of the uh, visit with a patient and doing all this administrative work, uh, almost uh, the physicians on average did one to two hours of work after the workday. This is another study that just came out in the last couple of months that looked at how family medicine physicians, um, uh, or when they, when they are on the EHR, so the bottom, uh, the x-axis here shows the hour of the day from 0 to 24. And then uh, the y-axis shows the proportion of total EHR work time, ranging from 0 to 10%. Um, so not surprisingly, during the workday, the, there's a pretty, uh, pretty steady and level use of the EHR between the hours of around 7 a.m. and actually around 7 p.m. What's surprising about this study is that there's actually um, a lot of use of the EHR on weekends, and particularly during weekend evenings. 
Um, so some might call this date night time. Um, one of the authors of the study has called that pajama time. Um, so time that I think most uh, people objectively would say should be time that you have with your family and your loved ones um, is still being spent in an almost level-loaded way um, uh, on, the, on the electronic health record with documentation. So the electronic health record use, almost all of that is for documentation purposes and um, following up on results, answering inbox messages, and things like that. So what's the answer? Could we just work less? Um, Obviously, the answer to that is no for so many reasons, but some have suggested limiting work hours in an attempt to try to improve burnout in physicians. This has been a most prominently studied in, um, in, in residency. Um, as many of you may have heard, uh, there were physician duty hour changes in 2011 that mandated that first-year residents interns could only work 16-hour shifts, which is still a very long shift. Um, and in 2017, this year, uh, that actually was changed back to the old system of allowing 24-hour shifts. Um, there's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, question and thought about that, but the evidence actually doesn't support that shorter shift lengths necessarily are beneficial to well-being. So, in three large internal medicine programs, this study looked at. Um, uh, burnout in interns before and after the 2011 duty hour reforms. So interns who worked 24-hour shifts beforehand, then the next cohort worked 16 hours. And they had no difference in burnout, similar reported sleepiness. And basically, the reason for this is that the same amount of work was expected to be done, but in a shorter amount of time. So not surprisingly, that did not improve well-being. And some have hypothesized, although the data hasn't hasn't supported this in terms of burnout rates, that qualitatively that this has led to uh, less engagement in work. Um, and so the answer is not necessarily just shortening the hours, but also providing um, the supports to allow that workload to all be done in the amount of time that is available. And transitioning a little from workplace structures, um, leadership and culture, uh, just like in any workplace, are also very important for burnout. Um, there was a study at the Mayo Clinic looking at burnout and satisfaction um, by physician scientists, um, and it found that burnout decreased and satisfaction increased based on the perceived effectiveness of their, of their division or departmental leaders. Another study examined the association between values conflicts mismatch at work. So um, your workplace may say that they have a mission statement, but the actual practiced values may be quite different from that. When there's a mismatch between values and um, uh, values at work and personal values, that exacerbates burnout. And particularly in women, this study found that it tended to have a stronger effect on burnout in women. And then trainees are markedly vulnerable to uh, cultural influences, the hidden curriculum, which means uh, do as I do as I say, not as I do. Essentially, um, uh, has a, causes a lot of moral distress in trainees, uh, which can exacerbate burnout. This is a recent article in the Harvard Business Review by Vivek Murthy, who uh, just completed or finished his tenure as Surgeon General. Um, 
And he has been speaking a lot recently about the epidemic of loneliness at work and the lack of community despite being surrounded by people. So this kind of goes along into the cultural, uh, the cultural component of burnout with the lack of community at work. Um, so building community and feeling like you um, have good uh, relationships with your colleagues and they care about you as people is also protective against burnout. All right, so why does burnout matter? What are the consequences of burnout? We've talked a little bit about it, um, but you can break the consequences down into patient consequences, system consequences, and consequences on the individual. In terms of patient care, the consequences are numerous um, and have been well documented in multiple studies. Uh, residents in um, internal medicine who uh, who were burned out were more likely than those who were not burned out to report suboptimal patient care behaviors. These are not egregiously unprofessional behaviors, but they're the types of behaviors that we would hope in our best version of ourselves as physicians we wouldn't do. Things like discharging a patient maybe just a little bit a little bit too early because you're trying to decrease the workload of the team. Or... Um, uh, or curtailing a discussion about a procedure or test results or things like that, not going in quite as much detail as you might if you uh, were feeling completely recharged. Um, decreased empathy has also been associated with burnout, which is not surprising. It's almost the definition of burnout. Um, increased self-reported errors, um, and then decreased patient satisfaction. In terms of the health system, doctors who are burned out are more likely to report to use sick leave. They're also more likely to report that they intend to retire early and not have a full career in medicine. Um, and it may affect specialty choice with some suggestion that medical students who are burned out are less likely to choose specialties with direct care involvement like primary care. And in terms of the individual physicians, um, we've talked about the depression risk. They have decreased job satisfaction. And despite the unclear direct association with depression, suicidal ideation has independently been associated with burnout in physicians. So physicians, uh, physician suicide is obviously um, a never event. It's something that nobody ever wants that should never happen. Um, and it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of physician well-being because it's obviously a sentinel event that happens happens rarely but with, unfortunately, greater frequency than in the general U.S. population. So we've known for some time that the suicide rate in physicians is higher um, than in the general population, particularly for female physicians who complete suicide um, at more than twice the rate of um, of. Uh, matched population, women in the population. So again, if we are to think um, about physicians in terms of shared humanity, um, we, are, we have mostly been talking about basic hierarchy of needs here, so physiology, be, being able to be well-rested and safety. Um, but I think you know, if you are to think, what what does every human deserve, and what what are the goals for every person? What would we wish upon others? It would be able to move up into these higher levels of feeling like you belong, feeling like you have uh, a valued position in the world, and then feeling like you're able to do something that is meaningful in your life. So, independent of the effects on the patients in the system, physicians, physician well being. Uh, has implications for our shared humanity. 
So just to summarize what we've talked about so far, we've talked about some of the, um, the inputs that drive burnout and then also some of burnout's effects. And right now is about the time when people are starting to feel like this talk is burning them out. Um, so uh, this is a lot of, um, of pretty, pretty sobering stuff. Um, I'm going to talk now, though, about some really positive changes in the way we're thinking about burnout that have a lot of potential to really move the needle, what we can do about it. Institute for Healthcare Improvement, um, uh, some of you may be familiar with this, uh, developed this model for health systems improvement that includes reducing the cost of care while improving population health and uh, the patient experience simultaneously. Um, what some authors have commented on is that this leaves out the importance of well-being of providers, not only physicians, but the healthcare team who is trying to deliver this healthcare. And so um, Tom Bodenheimer and Chris Sinsky had this perspective that was very impactful a few years ago where they described the quadruple aim, uh, which not only includes these three elements of health systems improvement, but includes provider well-being as an essential and integral component of health systems improvement. So using this systems approach helps us to envision how we might conceptualize uh, physician well-being as a benefit to the entire health system. Because a lot of the early research on burnout focused on individual factors, a lot of the interventions um, for burnout focused on individual interventions as well, and also focused a lot on reacting. So um, this physician is struggling, let's find them and make them better, rather than trying to promote well-being actively. Um, with a new systems view of well-being, um, efforts are moving more towards combining individual approaches that both support well-being proactively and also start to address some of the systems elements that are contributing. And in the future, we'll have a shared approach uh, where we are looking at how we can improve and optimize the system to support well-being, to improve patient care, to improve the health system, and then also address some of the individual just inherent difficulties of physician work and prepare people for that. This is a social ecological model which um, is used a lot in public health programs to organize how you might target interventions. Um, so if we think about the domains of physician well-being and where we might have impactful interventions, interventions can be targeted at the societal level, the organizational level, or the interpersonal and individual level. So we'll talk about different interventions that have been tried in future directions in each of those areas. At the societal level, um, going back to Vivek Murthy, um, he actually was the first Surgeon General to highlight physician well-being as a health systems problem um, and actually came out with that as one of the strategic priorities for the Surgeon General. Um, so even having people who are powerful and are a voice say this kind of thing, I'm worried about the well-being of doctors, I'm worried about the impacts on the health system, that helps to start the culture change at a societal level. Um, but I also want to highlight some examples of policies and policy change that can contribute to physician well-being. Um, 
So in, in terms of licensing requirements, no one, no one thinks that impaired physicians should be able to practice. That is definitely, uh, that is definitely a non-starter. Um, however, a lot of uh, state licensing organizations require physicians to report any history of treatment for any mental health um, any mental health condition, regardless of whether it's resolved or regardless of whether it was um, treated in its very early stages. Um, what has been recommended is that licensing organizations require mandatory reporting only when the physician is actively impaired by a mental health condition. Um, when they have studied across the country states that have this concordant licensing requirement, meaning that they only require reporting of mental health treatment when um, a physician is, is impaired, those physicians are more willing to seek mental health care. And conversely, in states where physicians have to disclose any mental health care, they are less likely to want to seek mental health care. So if you treat um, depression in its early stages, it certainly doesn't cause impairment, um, but it can progress to uh, a much worse state if not treated early. So that's an example of policies that can either help or... Um, possibly impede physician well-being. The um, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, the ACGME, has recent, uh, which is the body that tells uh, residency programs what their requirements are, um, started a mandate this year for programs to monitor and measure burnout, as well as to provide resources to 24-hour mental health referrals. Um, so again, these are uh, some of these practices are actually quite hard to implement right away. But I think uh, taking a stand and saying that this is something that is important at a national level is, uh, helps to drive the conversation forward. So talking about organizational interventions, this refers to the practice environment in which a physician is. So this may be um, a microsystem like a clinic. This may, be, uh, the, this may be the health system in which someone works. It may be the residency or the medical school in which somebody is. So going back to our workplace drivers of burnout, uh, a lot of the interventions uh, that are proposed or have been tried seek to address a lot of these things. We don't have as many organizational interventions, and that's because this is sort of the leading edge of research on burnout right now. So expect a lot of studies to come out about practice optimization in the next few years. Studies that have been done, so either uh, randomizing different clinics to develop, to develop uh, organizational well-being interventions, or case studies of um, clinics that had very effective practice environments and happy, engaged physicians um, have some common themes. Um, so some of the things that have uh, been successful or are concurrent with in, uh, physician engagement include adequate staffing. Um, so I, um, counterintuitively, um, uh, the, uh, having two medical assistants, for example, which is a much higher staffing requirement for every physician, actually increases the number of patients that physicians can see and actually decrease costs overall um, because uh, it allows the physician to actually spend more time in patient care. Um, schedule flexibility, so not you know not saying that a physician can work whenever they want, but that there's some type of choice went among a few options. Coverage for illness, I think this is probably surprising to some people outside of medicine, but a lot of practices don't have any way to cover doctors who call in sick. And so doctors often work when they're sick, um, and or the patients, all the appointments are canceled when somebody is sick, um, which uh, some of you may have experienced. 
So having those systems in place encourages people to take the time they need to recover so they don't get sicker. Um, in terms of reducing administrative burden, medical scribes who uh, take down notes and start the notes for physicians uh, have been helpful. Inbox support, so answering non-medical questions uh, for physicians uh, by non-medical staff, um, with or without physician review, depending on the scenario. And then the ability to give verbal orders for routine orders uh, or to generate order sets rather than doing every every order de novo. Uh, that's both in the outpatient and inpatient setting. And then in terms of teamwork, task sharing. So um, the idea being that everyone on the team should be doing the job for which they were uniquely trained. When tasks are shifted too much in one direction, it doesn't have to be the physician. When they're shifted too much onto anyone, the entire team functions poorly. Um, so optimizing the, um, the tasks for the, for the work for which people were trained and enhancing communication, doing team-based training and co-locating teams. And then also just redesigning workspace. Um, so the top picture is from uh, Google's, uh, one of Google's offices. Um, and then the, the bottom picture is actually the rooftop of uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General, uh, which was designed to have a healing environment and uh, outdoor space within the workplace. Um, and speaking of Google, I think you can't help being in the Bay Area and wondering, you know, um, if you know anyone who works in tech or you yourself work in tech, might be like, you know, everyone seems so happy when they're working in tech, even though they work so many hours. It's not true across the board, but there's been a lot of work that's gone into employee engagement in the technology field. So question is, can we adapt any of those um, strategies? Probably not all of them are applicable to medicine or other fields, but some of them might be. So here's some examples of um, some employee engagement uh, and incentivizing strategies that have been used at Stanford and the Mayo Clinic. The WellMD program at Stanford um, basically allows physicians to record and bank time for things that are traditionally um, uncompensated and actually things like teaching or mentoring um, or serving on a committee um, are often uncompensated. Um, being on a quality improvement committee at a hospital is usually uncompensated. So banking that time and then being able to, because that does affect the amount of time you're able to devote to, often it encroaches on your home life, um, that, that banked time can be paid back as a service that helps with work-life balance. Either things like meal delivery, if that's the thing that's hardest, or um, child care or things like that. At Mayo Clinic, they did a randomized trial looking at incorporating protected time for well-being into the workday. So they actually bought out about 0.9% of uh, 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 multiple physicians' um, FTE, their, um, their full-time equivalent position, um, which was very expensive. Um, and they were allowed to devote that time um, either for themselves or to joining a shared physician group um, where they had uh, uh, self-facilitated discussions about topics relevant to well-being and self-care. Um, and actually, the, the strongest effect was in the arm where physicians had um, a meal together and did this self-facilitated group in self-care. There was decreased burnout in that group. And that in that group, the effect persisted after the end of the study period. So there was um, something about creating that space that, that changed people's uh, prospective experience as well. 
So a lot more to think about in that field in terms of workplace culture and employee engagement. So I'm going to talk about last the interpersonal and individual um, uh, strategies to reduce burnout. And we actually have the most data on this. Um, and there are strategies that are effective, although they are not effective in moving the needle as much as we would like, but they do work. Um, and including in these is supporting not only ourselves, but being a support network for each other. There are multiple different interventions. I'm going to talk about a few broad categories that include mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy training, group reflection, and then positive psychology or gratitude practice. Many of you are familiar with mindfulness. Um, uh, this is a specific type of meditation that's based on the Buddhist tradition of remaining in the present. Um, the, one of the first large trials of a mindfulness-based stru stress reduction course in physicians was this 2009 JAMA study um, where the physicians completed an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which is the standard course. They had decreased burnout. Um, and what was interesting, again, was that um, the reductions in burnout were persistent after the end of the intervention. So something about learning that skill increased forward coping mechanisms as well. Um, a lower. This is obviously a pretty intensive intervention. I have done a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, and it requires you to really commit a lot of hours up front. Um, not realistic intervention for medical students and residents generally. Um, so they have also done lower intensity interventions based on these principles in residents, such as a weekend training, which have also been successful. Interestingly, mandatory interventions may not be effective. Um, so the, you know, the idea is, ooh, this works. Let's, let's incorporate it into a medical school. Um, at the Mayo Clinic, uh, this is a study that just came out uh, in the last couple of months. Um, they did actually develop a curriculum, a skills-based curriculum that incorporated elements of mindfulness, and it was required for all first-year medical students. And interestingly, it actually did not reduce... Um, it didn't affect measures of well-being in the way that they had anticipated. And so their point was that um, when this is not the strategy that people prefer to use, it can, see, it can be competitive with other things that people see as valuable for their time. So they proposed that medical schools should still incorporate well-being space into the curriculum and give people, introduce people to... Um, skills that may be useful for them, but allow some autonomy in terms of how people use that time. And then improve, uh, improve the overall curriculum and structure to actually address things on both, on both ends. This is an interesting example of a study that was done um, for an online cognitive behavioral therapy training called Mood Gym. And actually, this is accessible um, I put the address here, but um, it's actually uh, freely accessible if you're interested. Um, the, in this study, interns were randomized to either doing this web-based CBT training versus getting a weekly resource email that had resources for well-being. These are four modules that were 30 minutes each, uh, one module per week over four weeks. So they're actually not very time intensive, but they actually had a pretty dramatic effect size. Now, it's obviously not great that this was, they thought they needed an intervention to reduce suicidal ideation in medical students. However, it was very effective. So the, um, the group who did CBT, uh, the online CBT modules, were 60% less likely to have thoughts of death or passive suicidal ideations on the PHQ-9 measure of uh, depression. 
um, and that was statistically significant. Um, and these focused on things like cognitive restructuring techniques, ways to adapt to difficult situations, and problem-solving strategies for interpersonal conflicts. Reflection sessions are another very commonly uh, incorporated intervention. Um, the most formal type of reflection session is a Balint type group. Um, these are trained uh, Balint facilitators who are often physicians uh, who lead small groups in discussions of clinical case conferences. But instead of talking about the pathophysiology or the uh, medical details of a case, it focuses on the physician-patient relationship and how to reconnect with the joys and investigate the challenges of, of being a doctor. Um, in our program, in internal medicine, we use a strategy based on the doctoring to heal approach by, developed here by Mike Rabo and Steve McPhee. Um, and I'll just uh, explain a little bit about that. This is a written uh, reflection where we have uh, small groups in person and everyone writes a, a short narrative based on one of these prompts. Um, the, there are two sessions and they use different prompts. And then um, everyone turns in their their narrative and then anonymously distributes them and they read them out anonymously. And that has the effect of normalizing everyone's experience because everyone's hearing things that are totally relatable and no one knows who wrote it. It could have been the person next to you. It could have been your, it could have been your facilitator, your faculty member. Um, and it really uh, helps to build community and normalize these experiences, reduce isolation, and also just bring out some of this, these difficulties of um, being in medicine so that they're not coming out when you are watching a Super Bowl commercial. And then finally, talk about um, individual resilience and positive psychology. So again, this is, uh, we don't have a lot of data in medicine for positive psychology, but this is sort of, uh, again, on the horizon of what's at the forefront of some of the individually based strategies. Um, resilience has a lot of definitions. Um, the bad definition of resilience is something that can bend so hard that it doesn't break. Um, that is not what we want for physician well-being. I think the definition I find most useful is being able to positively adapt in, this, in the face of stressors so that you're able to learn from challenges and apply that to future knowledge. Um, when they've looked at physicians who were, were resilient with a large qualitative study, they found that a lot of the traits that were most common or the practices that were most common were gratitude, engaging in difficulties instead of turning away from them, self-awareness, self-acceptance, and self-compassion, goal and limit setting, and then intellectual stimulation and joy in work. So this is not just bouncing back, turning that frown upside down, putting your head down and going. This is really having an emotional awareness and having, um, having the ability to self-regulate and adapt. Positive psychology is a, is a similar concept, um, which basically focuses on getting the good life, which sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I, I think we all want the good life, but how do you get it? Well, um, it, it, some of you may have read the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote that book, had this concept of the experiencing self versus the remembering self. Um, and this is based on the idea that your influence of a memory is often based on your final impression of an experience. So you may have an amazing vacation, but then on the way home, you have a flight diverted and tons of turbulence, and then it takes you two days to get home, and, um, or, and you got sick on the plane, and you may leave thinking your vacation was terrible, even though 95% of the vacation was great. 
So the idea behind positive psychology is can you draw out those positive experiences and have those influence both your memory, but also your prospective experience of future, future events? And there's some science behind that. Um, there has been a study in residents using this approach for coaching, which has shown um, has shown a high satisfaction and also in comparison to prior groups who did not receive the coaching, decreased rates of burnout. And these are some strategies that may be useful to you in your work. Um, these are not specific to medicine. I put some examples that may be used in medicine, but these are positive psychology and resilience strategies that many of you may have even used and um, can be useful in everyday work for, for a lot of people. And the whole point of this is the more you can incorporate it into your everyday life and it's not now is my mindfulness time, now is my well-being time, I have to set aside an hour for well-being, that feels overwhelming and makes people resentful of well-being. Um, and so the goal is to figure out how to incorporate these things and give yourself some minutes in the day. So three good things is um, a gratitude practice of thinking back to three things you're thankful for every day, week, month, whatever time period is uh, you feel like is feasible to think back on. Um, a low-high reflection. Um, a lot of times with the three good things, people really want to think about, they really want to focus on something bad. So this gives you that ability to focus on something that's negative. You can do that, get it off your chest, and then also think about something that you're proud of or that's positive. Walk in their shoes, also called perspective taking. Um, so this is the idea that you can build empathy by assuming positive intent um, on someone else's behalf. So if you had a really uh, annoying interaction or a really challenging interaction with a colleague, go walk back through that entire experience and pretend you're that person. Helps you to build empathy and imagine, you know, maybe they had had a similar interaction or five similar interactions that day and this was the last straw. Maybe they had something going on in their personal life. It doesn't matter whether it was true or not, but you can, you can imagine where people may have come to that situation from their perspective. And then goal setting, I encourage residents and students to set a well-being goal and to value that as much as their clinical goals. And then finally, visualization exercises. So one example of this is, is called your best possible self. This is simply imagining yourself 20 years from now if everything worked out as well as it possibly can. And we don't think that way very often. It's very rare that we sit back and we say, if things can be as good as they can possibly be, here's what they'll look like for me. Um, and that just uh, gives you some positive visualization and helps you to think towards, um, uh, think more optimistically. So this is just a summary of uh, the different strategies I talked about at the individual level here. So we talked about a lot related to physician well-being and burnout. We went through the definitions, talked about the scope of the problem, why uh, people get burned out, why we should care, and then what we should do about it. Um, and then to summarize some of the things that are both happening now and on the horizon, the, there's a, just so much going on in this area right now. And I think um, hopefully with everybody working together, there will be a lot of efforts that focus not only on the individual as we have primarily, but really on system change to the benefit of both doctors and patients. So on the society level, promoting a trust, uh, trustworthy culture and advocacy. At an organizational level, building supportive systems, fostering engaged leadership and highly functioning teams. And then at the individual level, 
pure support and anticipation for these tough things that are inherent to physician work, uh, destigmatizing and prioritizing mental health, and then individual self-care strategies. And um, these are adapted from the Collaborative for Healing and Renewal in Medicine's draft charter on physician well-being. And I'm happy to take any questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.